Well, if you didn't know, it's an election year. Relax, okay? This is not, this is not a political sermon, at least not in the way that you're thinking. That's coming later in the year, okay? Right now, our television screens and our social media threads are filled with political commentary, at least mine are. And by this point, the, the field of candidates has, has narrowed. But it wasn't, it wasn't too long ago that many were making their public announcement to declare their bid for presidency. We saw this in the recent past, folks casting their name out, saying, I'm going to run, you should vote for me. And, and how one chooses to launch a campaign is no small deal, right? I mean, there's a lot of strategy that goes into this initial announcement. You want to strike the right tone. You want to make, make a strong statement as you go public. There's a lot of thought that goes into that first announcement. Was well, as Matthew is telling his Jesus story, the passage we're in this morning that Johnson just read for us is Jesus' messianic campaign launch. He's, he's, he's finally going public. Okay, so we started in Advent with the birth of Jesus, right? And then there's this long period of silence where we don't know much about the life of Jesus. He, he was with Joseph and he was learning carpentry, and there were decades of silence. And then more recently, we, we've seen Jesus get baptized and then enter into the wilderness, and now he's going to go public with his ministry. And what's surprising as we jump into this passage is that Jesus' strategy is not to make his way south toward Jerusalem, but instead what the passage tells us is that Jesus goes north. As many of you know, I, I spent years 13 through 22 of my life, and really more than that, but that block of time for sure in Mississippi. And here's what I'm learning about Mississippi, it, it, or what I'm learning about Kansas rather. It's a lot like Mississippi. Don't take offense at that, okay? What I mean is it's, they're both rural states. Mississippi and Kansas are both very agricultural and predominantly rural. Mississippi is made up of towns like Yazoo City and Eupora and Poplarville. There are only a few big cities in the whole state. And so if you were going to campaign for office, if you were going to run for governor in Mississippi, you'd likely choose either Jackson or Biloxi or Gulfport to begin your campaign tour. You would, you would go to one of the few bigger cities in the state where the culture is, where the bigwigs are. You wouldn't start in a place like East Abuchi, right? Or Brooksville. But that's exactly what Jesus does. As he prepares to launch his public ministry, Matthew tells us that he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Now, when you read that word Galilee, you should translate that the boonies, the sticks. And this language of withdrew signals an intentional move by Jesus. Jesus went there on purpose. After he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, Jesus knows that it's time to begin his ministry. The baton is being passed from John now to Jesus. And so he makes an intentional move. And he withdraws 
to Galilee. According to Dale Bruner, Galilee was the most removed of the Jewish provinces, located as it was at the northernmost tier of Palestine. And the distance from Zion, the holy city, was, was not only geographic. Judeans thought Galileans sat rather loose to the law and were less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. Translation. Southern Jews thought Galileans were redneck and unrefined, and they didn't keep the law very well. Nobody had it on their bingo card that the Messiah would start his messianic campaign from Capernaum in Galilee. Well, no one except God who called his shot seven centuries earlier through Isaiah the prophet. In 733 B.C., this area that we're talking about, Galilee, was the first to be taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrian invasion is pictured by Isaiah as a cloud of darkness. It was a time of fear and oppression. And Isaiah, seeing this day coming, also sees a future day coming later when these people in Zebulun and Naphtali, when they would experience a glimmer of hope. Isaiah says that in, in, in their midnight sadness, light is going to peek over the horizon. Now, most believe that this prophecy was fulfilled around 538 B.C. when those people returned from exile and they went back to their land. But as Bruner puts it, while that return from captivity may have been a fulfillment, the true fulfillment of Isaiah's words happened 570 years Later, as Jesus makes his way north. What Matthew is telling us in his story is that by quoting Isaiah, he's telling us that the great light that is shined on this area, this region of Galilee, is none other than Jesus. That he's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But here's the question. Why Galilee? Why start there? If you're going public with your ministry, why would you choose a place like Galilee? Why go where no one is expecting you? Why begin in the obscure ghetto of Capernaum? What is Jesus trying to reveal? What's he trying to signal? Well, as Edward Schweizer puts it, Jesus is moved to Galilee of the Gentiles demonstrates God's amazing initiative toward those who had never even been considered. We keep seeing this in, in Matthew's story, don't we? We saw it first in the genealogy of Jesus, which includes Gentiles and women and people with sordid stories, not the kind of people that you would expect to show up in a messianic genealogy. And yet here they are. We see it again with the Magi coming from the east. These eastern star watchers coming to find their way at Jesus' feet and worship him. The first worshipers of the Messiah are Gentile astrologers. And here we see it again. The ones that you would expect to be on the outside. The insignificant. The just plain old normal folk are the very ones that Jesus is signaling he came for. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. It's no small thing that Jesus' title is Jesus of Nazareth. Or that he launched his ministry from Galilee of the nations. We use a similar phrase to describe America. America, the melting pot. But calling, calling Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations was at least for some people a kind of pejorative term. Signaling compromise and, and taintedness. And yet here Jesus is intentionally withdrawing himself north to go to this region to launch his ministry from this place. Because he's trying to tell you that this is the kind of Messiah he came to be. And that these are the kind of people he came for. I'm afraid that many people today still believe that Christianity is a religion for the put together. I think there are lots of people who perceive church still as a club for the well-kept. If that's you this morning and you just happen to get up the courage to, to come, I, I want you to hear me. Jesus launched his ministry from Galilee. He's a Messiah from Nazareth. Jesus comes to offer himself to the everyday folk. He comes to campaign on the streets of Ordinaryville. To say to the overlooked and the unsuspecting, your day has come. Your light has dawned. And in light of that good news, he says it's time for things to change. Verse 17 says that from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. You might recall that John was preaching a very similar message. In fact, it's almost the exact same wording. But John's, John's preaching was, was a, a preaching of repentance in preparation for the coming of Messiah. Jesus now says, hey, that time is here. It's come. The Messiah is here. So all the more, repent. Now, if we're honest, at least for some of us, maybe those who, like me, grew up in a certain brand of church, that word repentance can carry a negative connotation. Maybe you're inclined to think of a fundamentalist preacher pounding a pulpit and demanding that everyone repent. Just making sure y'all are awake this morning. But to repent simply means to change your mind about something. It means to turn away from something towards something else. As, as one author puts it, it means a reshaping of our mindset, rethinking our way of thinking and being and doing. Repentance is a new outlook on life. It's, it's a new way of seeing the world that leads to a new way of living in the world. And what Jesus is announcing is that it's time to start looking at life differently. That his arrival changes everything. One author explains that we were created to live our days filled with joy and satisfaction and celebration. That God's world was once a joy-filled harmony, filled with the glory of God and unstained by sin and all of its dark manifestations. But all this came apart when sin entered into the world. Sin declares war on God's rule. It introduces chaos and disorder into the perfect harmony that he made us for. And with that war comes all kinds of chaos and strife. As God unpacks the consequences of sin in Genesis 3, we see just chaos and disorder 
and war at every level. There's enmity, enmity between God and man. There's, there's warring between the humans. There's even warring between humans and the ground. By the sweat of your brow, he tells Adam, you will now reap. There will be pain in childbearing. There's, there's brokenness at every level. Author Mike Cosper says, we currently live in, a service, in service of a variety of kingdoms. Our personal kingdoms. Our family's kingdom. Perhaps our business or political kingdom. And unbeknownst to many of us, we are even subject to the evil king and his kingdom of darkness. His power in the world and in our hearts has caused us to live a life of resistance, rebellion, and denial of God's authority. This is really the story of the Bible. It's the story of a, it's a sordid tale of chaos and sin. One long search for God's promised redeemer to turn the world right side up again. And then suddenly Jesus shows up and declares, repent because the kingdom has come near. This is good news. Don't hear repentance as bad news. Hear it as good news. Jesus is telling you, hey, the king has come. The one you've been waiting for, the one you've been looking for, the one that's going to deal with the problem of sin and chaos and death has come. He's saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for and you should turn and you should come to me. Come to me, all the earth, and be saved. The emphasis, says Bruner, is, is on turning from our preoccupations toward God. He says, whatever keeps one from turning toward the coming kingdom is is that from which one should turn. I wonder what it is for you this morning. What is it that you're so preoccupied with that you're tempted to miss out on Jesus? It's not just our blatant sins that might keep us from the kingdom. It's our preoccupation with otherwise neutral things that we've become overly attached to. You know, it's often a good thing that can keep you from the kingdom. Because when anything becomes more important to us than God, it's no longer a good thing. The Bible calls that an idol, a false god, a rival king who vies for our hearts. And when we repent, we not only acknowledge the reality that things in our life are broken, we're also changing our allegiance. We're turning away from life without Jesus to have life with him. Repentance is a transformation of our loyalties, moving from a world of idols to the one true king. Jesus is issuing an invitation. He's saying, God's promised rescue is here. The time has come for me to be your king. So repent of all your petty idols and kingdoms and believe this good news. Believe in me. That's what Jesus is saying. Mike Cosper says, repentance means a loss of lesser things that have our hearts. Laying off our addiction to sin and self, but gaining life with God, the life we were made for. Repentance is an invitation to abandon those trappings of this broken world and to find rest in the true king who can save us and truly satisfy our souls. I just wonder if you've done that. 
Have you received the invitation of Jesus to make him your king? I wonder if you need to hear that invitation fresh and new. Maybe you've gotten re-entangled in sin. Maybe you're flirting with treason. Repent for the kingdom is here. Jesus, your king, has come. He invites you to let go of your idols, forsake those worldly kingdoms, and to lay hold of him. What might you need to turn from in order to receive this good news this morning? Is there any sin ensnaring you? Jesus is calling you to follow him. He's telling you that life under the rule and reign of God is available right now for those who believe in him as Savior and King. Verse 18 tells us that as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus, looking at them, said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in a boat preparing their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In rabbinic speech, follow me meant come be my apprentice. As Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom, he begins to call disciples to follow after him to help him usher this kingdom in what we see here is that Jesus doesn't simply want from us a momentary repentance he's not looking to give us merely a religious experience or an emotional response as much as he is looking to have a relationship he's calling us into a lifelong learning experience with him as our teacher What he's saying to these fishermen is, hey, let me show you how to live. Let me teach you what life is really all about. Follow me in the Greek is, in this passage, a present tense imperative, which which stresses continuity. What what, What Jesus is actually saying is, hey, come live a life of following me. He calls disciples into a continuous walk with him rather than just a single act toward him. In fact, in the first century, disciples often lived with their rabbis. When a rabbi invited you into relationship, you would often go to his house. You would be a study in residence, a 24-7 immersive experience with that rabbi. I wonder if that's how you view Christianity. Friends, if I can be a little blunt. Jesus wants more than an hour and a half on Sundays. He wants you to follow him in all of life. He has so much to teach you. He wants to show you what life is truly about. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus invited Peter and Andrew and James and John into a whole new purpose for living. Because, see, the end game of discipleship is not only personal salvation. When Jesus calls someone to be his disciple, he calls them into ministry. Did you catch that? This is crazy, right? This is crazy. They just met. I mean, they're 
at best baby Christians. They don't even know really, truly, fully who Jesus is. And yet this is the end game for these guys. Charles Spurgeon once said that every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. I think we get this confused in the modern church. I think sometimes we're we're tempted to think that pastors are the professional disciples who do the work of ministry. And that it's our job to just maybe show up on Sunday morning and sing, maybe, and throw some money in the offering plate. But what we see here is that Jesus is inviting every disciple into ministry. He says, hey, I want you to come follow me, and then I want to use you to call others to follow me. He's saying, I want to use you. Now, maybe that seems crazy to you. Maybe you say to yourself, man, he could never use me. Friend, he's in Galilee talking with fishermen. He used fishermen from Galilee to turn the world upside down. It's been said before that he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Jesus went to where no one thought they were qualified and he called them to himself. And he says to them, I not only want you, I want to use you for my kingdom. Jesus built his kingdom. He he turned the world upside down through some ordinary men and women. And he invites you to the same sort of thing. He says, come learn from me and let me use you in my kingdom. And can I just say this? Because I know this is true for some of you in the room this morning. If your life feels stale, if you feel stagnant in your faith, could it be that you've lost sight of your calling? Could it be that you're not leaning into this invitation of Jesus to be a fisher of men? One of my mentors, heroes in the faith, was a man by the name of Brother Mickey Dalrymple. Yes, that was his real name. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with Mickey one day where I was confessing to Mick that I was stale. That my faith felt cold. And in only the way that Mick could in his thick Alabamian accent, he said, Boa, nothing wets your whistle like sharing Jesus with somebody. That's good. That's good theology right there. You write that one down. Nothing wets your whistle like sharing Jesus with somebody. You were made for this. You were saved for this. You were invited into a relationship with Jesus for this. Like what if you woke up tomorrow morning believing that? That God not only loves you and wants relationship with you, but that he wants to use you right where you are for his kingdom purposes. Notice what happens in our passage, verse 23. It says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him, I wonder who those they is, all those who were afflicted. Those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. 
Word begins to spread as Jesus travels this region and he begins to preach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And soon enough, people are bringing their relatives and their friends to Jesus for healing. Large crowds begin to follow. The disciples immediately get a taste of what life with Jesus is like. Presumably, they're the ones bringing people, saying, hey, Jesus is going to be speaking at the amphitheater at 3 p.m. You should come. You got anybody sick? Anybody suffering? Jesus will heal them. And the word spreads. People come, and Jesus does his thing. And as a side note, this is just a side note, notice the holistic nature of Jesus' ministry. It's both word and deed. It's proclamation and it's power. It's a message and it's mercy. We live in such a polarized world. We love to divide on everything. Conservatives and liberals get this one wrong, right? Liberals love to emphasize the social ministry of Jesus. Conservatives love to emphasize the call to repentance. Jesus is doing both. He preaches and he heals. We would do well, church, to aim at both. We would do well to do that with our lives. We would do well to do that as a church. As I was thinking about this passage, I just... Bear with me, this is hypothetical, but I just wonder what the conversation was like with those disciples that first night after they followed Jesus, sitting around the fireplace. What was that conversation like? Did you see what he did with that one guy? Who is this guy? Remember that at this point, These guys didn't have Jesus figured out, as if they ever could, but certainly not at this point. They had all kinds of questions. Can I just say that if you're waiting to get Jesus figured out before you follow him, you'll never be his disciple. Jesus reveals more of himself to us as we follow But you have to follow first. Listen to me. The wonder of the kingdom is for those who drop their nets. Because they were willing to follow, the disciples were front row participants in the kingdom of darkness getting pushed back. And the same can be true for you and me. Literally what's happening here in this kind of summary passage of Jesus doing all kinds of crazy stuff is that he is reversing the curse of sin. He is undoing Genesis 3. In other words, he's not just announcing his messianic candidacy to people. He is serving notice to the powers, to the principalities, to the forces of darkness that the time had come to crush the enemy's head. He is campaigning for the kingdom of heaven to come in its fullness. Every miracle Jesus performs is a foretaste of the coming kingdom. It's a little glimpse. It's a little morsel in the life that is coming. How things are supposed to be and how they ultimately will be when he rules and reigns and Satan is defeated. In no uncertain terms, what this passage is about, what Matthew is telling us, is that Jesus is the one you're searching for. That he is the one that you need. That he is going to teach you how to live. That he is the one you cannot do without. 
One thing is certain. This Jesus Matthew is telling us about is non-ignorable. You just can't look past him. He entered into history and disrupted things in such a way that he forces you to reckon with him. He launches his campaign insisting that he is the king who deserves your allegiance. Who you need to trust and he invites you to follow him. Matthew testifies to us that he performed miracles and demonstrated the entrance of God's kingdom into the world in powerful ways. C.S. Lewis once said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I, don't, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He does not intend to. In essence, this is Jesus' public announcement. This is his campaign speech. It was then and it is now. He is the king who's come to usher in God's rule and reign. He is the one history or one candidate in the history of the world who has made good on every promise. And the question is not will you vote for him? The question is will you bow your knee and follow him? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. When the disciples heard the call of Jesus, it says they immediately left their nets and followed him. What about you? Let's pray together.